Good afternoon. I am Patrick D. McCoy, the African-American voice in classical music, and I welcome you to today's special broadcast. Today we have a very special guest on the air with us. Our special guest today is revered by lovers of cool music around the world. His compositions are sung by choirs of all ages, from symphonic choruses to church choirs. He is currently celebrating his 25th year as conductor of the world-renowned Concordia Choir of Concordia College of Moorhead, Minnesota. We welcome Renee Clawson. Good afternoon, Dr. Clawson. Good afternoon, Patrick. Good to be with you. Thank you so much. It is indeed a pleasure uh, to have you on with us today. I just reminisce on the experiences that I have had singing your pieces, such as Set Me as a Seal and All You That Have Life and Breath. So I'm so honored to have you on today. Well, uh, like I said, it's my pleasure, and I certainly hope it's warmer out there than it is here in Moorhead, Minnesota. Uh, it's, <laughs> it it's is been a little cold here, Washington D.C. <laughs> but I, I trust that when we get out there in a week or so, it'll be warm. Oh yeah, I hope really. so, especially with those voices that you have to deal with, making sure that they stay in pristine uh, condition for your concerts. I just want to talk well, to you about so. you being here. Why? I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, we just we certainly hope we keep them in a good pristine condition for for a long trip. <laughs> and I want to start by talking to you about the fact that the Concordia Choir will embark on its 2011 concert tour. Uh could you by any chance tell the listeners a little bit about where the choir will uh begin the tour and perhaps uh about some of your various stops, the highlights of your concert tour? Sure. Um, um, I don't have the tour itinerary in front of me, but I have a pretty good idea of where we're going. Actually, we start out with you in uh, D.C. area, so we'll fly from here out there and actually begin our tour. Uh, this is uh, our Eastern Swing. The Concordia Choir usually does a five-year rotation, so kind of northeast, southeast, south, southwest, and west. Um, so in the five-year swing, we pretty much cover the country. So this here is the eastern swing and so we start out there and then work our way back and uh so we'll be singing the National Presbyterian Cathedral there in DC. Uh other stops along the seaboard area there will be in uh, New York City. Um we'll be at uh Muhlenberg College in in Pennsylvania, there at Allentown. Um We'll be singing at the chapel, the wonderful chapel at Yale University there in New Haven, Connecticut. And uh, at the chapel, the famous one, actually, I was just there last summer, at Gettysburg, at, at Gettysburg College in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Um, also a suburb of Philadelphia, um, that northern suburb. And it just escapes my mind what it is right now. Um <laughs> And then we head east. I think we have three stops in in the Ohio, which is a fairly large state. I think Columbus and Dayton, maybe Akron. I'm again, I'm not quite sure there, but it's three stops in Ohio. Then coming across, I think into Indianapolis and into uh, uh, southern Wisconsin. I think, but near the University at Madison, and then back up to. Home, or Twin Cities area, Minneapolis, St. Paul, where we'll do kind of a second home concert. We have a lot of students that come from the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. So uh, 
that concert the night before our home concert here in, in Moorhead. It's kind of a second home concert for the choir as there are a lot of family and relatives that are at that location. So that's kind of the uh, nature of the tour this year. And it's one that we always hope we don't get blasted with snow at <laughs> that time of year where that could very easily happen. Yes, we've had our, our share of ice and snow here too, so I'm just really praying that that does not happen, that you all have a safe uh, trip free of all of that to deal with when you're touring. So what music uh, will listeners have an opportunity to hear on the concert, particularly the concert when they come to the uh, performance in Washington? Sure. Uh, I think it's going to be quite a wide-ranging and interesting program from a variety of perspectives. Um, we're doing uh, basically a four-set concert, uh, two larger sets uh, separated by an intermission. In the the first set, we're focusing on earlier music, not not the Renaissance per se, but uh, Baroque and classical music. We're actually beginning with uh, Mozart Venite Popoli. It's a double choir uh, motet with uh, strings and continuo, and that'll be followed by his very famous. Uh, Communion Motet Ave Verum. And then we're going to do uh, four sections of the 11, so not near the whole thing, but uh, four major sections of the Bach Motet in E minor, Jesu minor, Freude. Uh, so all of that first set uh, uses a portative organ, actually. We'll be carrying a real portative organ with us and a string quartet. Uh, that we'll be doing with that group of concert, literally concerted pieces. And then uh, the second set includes the Ralph Vaughan Williams, Lord Thou Hast Been Our Refuge, which is, again, a double choir texture, but set in Vaughan Williams' uh, typical style of dense textures and uh, median transitions uh, or harmonic transitions and and big organ this is one that uh, uh quotes the famous hymn tune o god our help in ages past uh and uses a very very triumphant uh piece so uh, uh there's that piece and then following that and closing right before the intermission is the third movement of the alfred schnitke who is a Russian modern composer. He died, I believe, in 1998. Uh, so in, in his music, he brings a very dramatic nationalistic style, so there's a large element of the, the Russian soul that is very much a part of his music. Um, but uh, a very modern sense of harmony and rhythm, especially, especially harmony, is quite, quite strident, sometimes approaching atonal music and then very quickly we'll slip back into tonality again so it it and this is an, uh, about a 12 minute unaccompanied piece that goes into i want to say a million parts but it's a lot each of the parts <laughs> divides uh up to three and four times into a, a rather uh, chromatic uh, flux of uh, harmonic color that uh, again moves it with with great uh, passion and intensity that's very typical of the Russian style and is amplified by Schnitke, who has a rather relentless approach to composition. 
So, uh, yeah, that's first half of the concert. Then we'll take about a 15-minute intermission. And in something that I think will be really fascinating, not only for our singers who will be doing it every night, but our audiences too, is the third set, uh, or the one after intermission, I'm labeling a journey into dreams and imagination. And a rather provocative, evocative title, I think, as it reflects this the music. Uh, the first piece in that set, again by Ralph Vaughan Williams, from his three Shakespeare songs, The Cloud-Capped Towers, which is actually on a text by Shakespeare, uh, which is very picturesque, a lot of madrigalisms in which he, he kind of expressed the meaning of the text and it paints the picture of, as you might imagine, cloud-capped towers and being a uh, very uh, you know, profound kind of titanic movement of slow-moving chords uh, and ends quite mystically. And that will go into a piece by contemporary composer Eric Whitaker, you may have be familiar with, a yeah. uh, very popular yeah. composer of, of many new choral works. Now his, and it's his Leonardo Dreams of a Flying Machine of his flying machine and is uh, uh, really kind of a, a takeoff on the life, or at least one section of the life of Leonardo da Vinci where he dreams of constructing uh, a flying machine. And it's very uh, coloristic and picturesque, it kind of sets up the idea of what it'd be like to be inside of Leonardo's head and uses some non-traditional choral sounds and uh, a very fascinating piece, engaging piece for the choir to sing, and one that tends to draw the audience in. So uh, uh, that piece then is followed by a very unique kind of piece. Uh, I might uh, insert at this moment that the choir will be traveling to South Korea in May for a couple oh, of wow. weeks. Yeah, we're very excited about this. We've never been that far east before. We've never gone to the Far East. So, um, in deference to that, I'm planning a couple of pieces that reflect that heritage. And so, we are doing a, a new piece of music. It's actually called Menari and subtitled uh, Space Music. It's by a woman, a Korean woman named Hoi Wan Woo. And in this piece, uh, the choir is written actually for a triple choir and separated triple choirs with a gong and uh, taiko drums and soprano soloist, all of which during the piece move around the auditorium at different times. Wow. And this is all, yes, it's amazing. It's, it's written in the score <laughs> that way, you know, that at this point the choirs move and the soloist moves to different places in the hall. And then this is all also coordinated, uh, correlated with the specific directions from the composer as to the lighting. Like at, at this point, the lighting should be 30%. At this point, it should be 50%. At this point, it should go dark. So it's this very fascinating multimedia uh, piece uh, in Korean um, that utilizes these triple choirs that kind of rotate in various places throughout the hall. Um, using both the traditional singing techniques and non-traditional sounds too, and actually in this piece, the the students do what's called overtone singing, and create uh, 
different overtones by singing really just one pitch, but by manipulating their jaw can create, and their pharynx, um, the whole pharyngeal mechanism, can can create uh, different overtones. And what happens then, they're kind of spread around when they do this, is as one series of overtones produced by one student meets another one, it can create a whole other set of overtones. So it's this rather uh, unique uh, piece that I, I think uh, audiences will just love. It's a very engaging, theatrical, dramatic uh, piece of music. So uh, uh, that is kind of one of the three major pieces in that set. And then we're going to close that set with um, uh, a piece uh, on an old text, actually, called Christ the Apple Tree by a student at St. Olaf College. I believe he's a senior this year. So written, what's kind of interesting about this is that uh, this piece is written by a, a composer, a young composer. That's the same age as the students that I have. And I think that's kind of fascinating for them uh, to be singing a piece of a contemporary, an exact contemporary of theirs, uh, and it's a very beautifully, elegantly designed uh, piece that will then follow that set with a, an arrangement of Craig Hella Johnson called Light of a Clear Blue Morning. Uh, so uh, I think that will will be a very uh, wide-ranging, contrasting, but yet unified set by this kind of dreams and imagination. All of these pieces take you to somewhere else. Uh, so then, the, in the, we'll take a little break then. In the final set, we always have what I call the ice cream set, or the dessert <laughs> set. And and uh, in that, we uh, have various types of folk songs. Uh, both we have, We're both doing American and uh, you know, uh, British uh, folk songs. One the American is uh, Shenandoah. We'll be coming through the Shenandoah River Valley out there in the East Coast. And when I've gone East before, audiences have appreciated the James Earp's beautiful, sonorous setting of the folk song Shenandoah. And oh, wow. then a British one, a British arrangement of uh, uh, Marianne, a very wonderful, uh, uh, kind of kind of melancholy tune about, about uh, celebrating a lost love. <laughs> and... Mm. Uh, and then we'll do some traditional literature from the Concordia tradition of F. Milius Chris Johnson, his setting of Wake Awake, his son Paul Jay's setting of The King of Love My Shepherd Is and the old Irish folk tune, and uh, close with our traditional closing of F. Milius' setting of Beautiful Savior. So that's the shape of the program. That's a, like a magnificent program. And just to go back to when you mentioned uh, Shenandoah and James Erb, uh, myself being from Virginia singing in choirs, um, most of us in that region know that James Herb taught for many years at the University of Richmond and directed the Richmond Symphony Chorus. So he's certainly a staple, um, you know, in the choral in the choral uh, community um, back home in Richmond, certainly in our nation. I want to move on uh, to your your setting as a seal. I would say probably, I guess in my opinion, I'm not sure if this is validated, but it, it has to be your best known work. Um, choral work sung by choirs, but what most people don't know is that it comes from a, a larger work. Could you speak a little bit about your your cantata, a new creation, and, and how that all came about? Yeah, I'm glad you know that. Uh, not a lot of people know that, <laughs> and it 
you know, that work uh, is essentially uh, the central movement of a larger church cantata, as you mentioned, called an, a new creation. In the in the context of a new creation, it's not called Set Me as a Seal. It's, it's called Him. I don't know if you've seen that in the score, but I believe it's the seventh, sixth or seventh movement, and I just simply entitled it Him, and it's the singular section or movement of that piece that's that's unaccompanied. Um, yeah, when when I wrote a new creation for a group, a church choir, and I believe Rockford, Connecticut, so out on the East Coast, um, I chose the a, a set of texts that were various kinds of discussions between God and humans, uh, both from the human aspect, from the God aspect. So I have uh, uh, a lot of uh, variations of the same kinds of themes of of, of of love, of joy, of disappointment, of anxiety, of doubt. Uh, a lot of these uh, themes come through in the cantata. But when it came to the text, Set Me as a Seal Upon Your Heart, um, I found that, and it's been true since, in the many years since I've written that piece, that uh, this hits people uh, from a lot of different directions. Uh, there, there's something about that text. Set me as a seal upon your heart, for love is strong as death. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. That is applicable at different stages of people's lives. Uh, for instance, that's been sung at many weddings and also at many funerals. <laughs> it has a kind of encompassing meaning, I think, that... Uh, uh, and and when I said it in relative simplicity, really quite a simple, straightforward piece. Uh, but yet I think it goes to the to the heart of that text, and so I think it can act as a, and a benediction for uh, a lot of different types of of events, and 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 anywhere from a concert piece to to someone's uh, wedding, like I said, to a funeral. As a matter of fact, that I just thought of this, but I had a very kind of uh, Twilight Zone experience with that piece a number of years ago. I don't know if you recall, but there was a, I think it was a U.S. Air flight that went down right off the coast of Miami. And I think they found out later there were some air oxygen canisters that exploded. Um, but anyway, there were, I think, uh, 70-some people on that flight. And uh, it was right off the the coast of Miami. And um, I remember my choir meets from 4.30 to 6 o'clock every day, and I usually get home around 6.15 or so, and uh, as often as the case, my wife was in the kitchen making dinner, and I walked in the back door, and we have on our kitchen counter one of those, you know, a little TV like a lot of people have watching TV or the news and, and making dinner, and I walked in the back door, and then a kind of freaky occurrence, I said, that set me as a seal coming out of those two-inch speakers on the television. And I, mm. I just couldn't believe it. This was, it was like the Dan Rather News or, or something. And come to find out that there was, uh, it was an open air. They had a, a service, a service of remembrance for right on the beach where that plane went down. And the choir was singing, set me as a seal. Oh, and it was just, wow. you know, it was, 
and which wasn't odd. What was odd is to walk in the door, and and all of a sudden on the on the little TV you're you're hearing your piece right as you walk in. So it uh, it's been sung at a number of occasions. I got a, a a nice, lovely letter from a man in Israel who had sung it with his uh, choir at the uh, Church of the Immaculate Conception there in in Jerusalem. So it it I, what I've been happy to to experience in that piece is that it's been able, I think, to help a lot of people, uh, both in a in a, a beneficent way at times of difficulty or tragedy or, or in, in a very loving way as a time of a wedding. That's probably more than you well, wanted to hear about that piece. <laughs> oh, no, it, it, that is, it, it's quite wonderful. A lot of people need to, to know that background because I'm sure you have choirs who are singing that piece all over, and it, and it is a beautiful piece, but that background is, is certainly so so profound. And what I would like to do now, if you have a moment, I would like to actually play uh, Set Me as a Seal, composed by Renee Cross and sung by the Concordia Choir.
such a beautiful piece. I was honored to Thank conduct you. Set Me of the Seal. It's one of my pieces on my graduate conducting recital when I was at Shenandoah Conservatory, so it's quite an honor to hear that piece again. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I want to, to move on and um, ask you uh, a couple of questions in terms of, of your career. Uh, now that you, you are actually um, this year celebrating your 25th year as conductor of Concordia Choir, and I want to know, after all these years, how do you as a conductor maintain that freshness and, and youthfulness in the sound of your ensemble? Um. Boy, 25 years is a long time. And you said that, and the question was, how would I maintain what? I'm sorry, I didn't quite hear you. The uh, the fresh, the freshness and the youthfulness in your in your choir sound. Well, you know, I think that the the students do a lot to keep you young. Uh, sometimes <laughs> they say they do a lot to make you old, <laughs> but not, <laughs> not 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 really. Um, you know, when you work, I've worked all my life with college-age students, basically. Um, it's where I've spent my career. And uh, when you're around young people, there's a certain kind of energy. Uh, they're always about the same age. You know, I've been noticing that as I've gotten older. College students are always the same age. They come in at 18 and graduate at 22, and I just keep getting a year older every year. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's that great time that great time in their life when uh, they're just really an open conduit. There's, uh, they're experiencing so much about themselves, uh, not only academically, but who they are as a sentient person away from their birth family. They're learning and growing. Uh, uh, it's a time when they're excited about uh, what it means to become educated, what it means to make music at a high level. And uh, you know, there's been many times where I'm very tired. We rehearse at 4.30 in the afternoon, 4.30 till 6 every day. And if I've been particularly busy or uh, engaged in another activity, I think, oh, where am I going to get the energy? And I walk into choir and all of their energy just kind of makes me bumped up. And at 6 o'clock comes and I'm still ready to go for another hour. So I, I think there's a lot a large part of that for anyone who works with young people is you are you can easily glom onto their energy and their newness. There, I mean, this is in many ways when they do the literature that you're doing at the college level. This is all new to them. Uh, hopefully, I mean, they were doing literature and music in high school that was appropriate for for that level, and they get to. The collegiate level experience, and are suddenly doing pieces of various composers through five centuries of choral music, everything from Renaissance to music written very recently. So I think you know that's exciting for all of us together to be to have this uh, music in front of us that uh, seems eternal anyway. I think anyone who works in music, especially in choral music, if if you don't have um, passion and excitement for what you do uh it's soon gonna show, so I hope you know I hope I have someone that's a good enough friend to tell me Clausen, you better hang it up you know <laughs> if, if you can't really feel that passion anymore then then it's time to uh, pass the baton. 
speaking of passion and passing the baton, that leads me in my, to, into my next question. What is the impact, or could you rather discuss the impact of Dale Warland on your career as a choral conductor? Well, I think when you speak of Dale, you speak of not only myself, but every other conductor in our region, and and if not in our region, nationally. You know, Dale, uh, when he was, I think, at McAllister, I hope I'm not, I'm not recalling the wrong college, but I think Dale for many years was at McAllister College in the Twin Cities and then started uh, when I and I think it was about the early 70s, the Dale Worland Singers. And, um, you know, he developed this into a truly professional choir. Um, in this country, we don't have many of those. We've really grown up with the European symphonic tradition uh, and many professional orchestras, you know, scattered throughout our country, and, uh, that are are excellent, excellent professional orchestras. Yet it doesn't seem to have worked that way in choruses. Um, we expect choruses to be volunteer, and even the you know, the major symphony choruses uh, associated with many, many symphonies are volunteer organizations. Mm-hmm. And uh, it hasn't seemed to have stopped choral singing. It seemed to be growing by leaps and bounds uh, nationally. But Dale was able to uh, really establish uh, a professional chorus that uh, could be an instrument for many uh, new pieces and new composers. And one of the great features that Dale's been able to do is uh, hold a conviction of... um, being dedicated to new music and and doing new pieces, commissioning new pieces from modern living composers. Uh, And I respect that uh, tremendously, uh, his commitment to new music and to developing uh, and and, uh, commissioning new pieces for chorus that, that he could do with his outstanding choir. And he had, you know, Dale has a wonderful ear uh, for balance, especially when I mean, you hear the radiance uh, of the Dale Worland singer's sound, you always know it's very carefully refined and and balanced and elegant in its interpretation. Um, so, so when you look at what he's accomplished over those many years um, of both uh, advocating for new composers and for all that he did with the Worland Singers and the many recordings that he's made, I don't think there's one of us that doesn't owe him a debt of gratitude. Mm. And certainly, uh, just like uh, Dr. Worland, um, you yourself are, are dedicated to training um, aspiring conductors, and I want to know if you could possibly uh, speak uh, on the subject of the Renee uh, Coral School, uh, which is uh, will be back in session this summer. Right. Yeah. It. Uh, I guess we've. Yeah, you know, we took one summer off, but I think that we had done it for eleven previous summers, as I recall. And uh, what that is about is a, a week-long event in the summer, and we call it a choral school because, in a way, it it does not try to be a workshop so much as a more in-depth experience for about a week, where. Uh, we essentially have most all of the day together and part of the evening. So it's a, a rather in-depth experience of a group of conductors, 
and it varies every year as to how many, but they usually are coming from, I think, on average, 25 to 30 states, so all of, around the country, from everywhere from east to west to north to south, and every level, from church choir director to um, collegiate level, high school level, community chorus directors. Community choirs are the largest growing segment of choral music in our country, and so uh, more and more of those types have made their way to the choral school. And and you know what happens when you put 65, 70, 80, 90 conductors from everywhere together is you're talking shop for a week. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a rich, it's a rich fertile ground for uh, just exchanging ideas. We ask people to bring favorite pieces with them. Uh, we uh, we uh, try and expose them to lots of different types of literature, sharing ideas together. I do my professional shtick with them, um, essentially turning them into a big corral and doing my uh, choral thing with them. And then I'll also do separate uh, lectures on various aspects of uh, ensemble, of technique, of performance practice, interpretation, working with voices, all of those areas. And then always we'll have uh, a guest or two, sometimes two, um, uh, during the week. And we've had some outstanding, as a matter of fact, Dale Wathen was our first guest. Uh, the very mm -hmm. first one for the first choral school, and we've had many, many outstanding uh, guests. And I, I know I would leave out somebody, but uh, Andre Thomas and Anton Armstrong and mm -hmm. um, uh, ma many uh, conductors. Uh, Ran Z. Randall Stroop has been here with us. Uh, Rallo um, Dilworth has been here. Weston Noble has been our our guest. Um, uh, it uh, just we've had many, many of the most outstanding people in the country. Uh, Joe Michael Scheibe, I think, of another one. I'm just trying to think of who's all been here, uh, and 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 I know I've left some out, but many, many of the finest conductors in the in the country uh, come for a day or two to share their expertise. And what we always try and do in the choral school is to allow the guests to do what they want to do. Uh, what excites them about uh, you know, whatever it is in their their choral life that they most want to share? And what happens in that week after you know when you've been talking and singing and eating together all week? Uh, it's uh, you go home with your batteries recharged. And mm. I think if if we do that, if I have that as the premier goal of what we try and do to be solid, to create solid choral music education, to take experienced conductors and uh, from everyone from people who have been conducting 30, 40 years to new students. And we have special scholarship for for new conductors coming into the profession. You know, it's really extraordinary when you put all of those together. As a matter of fact, I recall, I think I, knew, I do this nearly every year, and, and the first meeting I'll ask them, to raise their hands by five-year increments and for how many years they've been conducting. And there's always a segment who are five years and less. And then there are always another segment at the far end who have been conductors for 35 or 40 years. And I find it always an inspiration, and I will tell the young conductors, look to see who's around you. 
These people who have been conducting 35, 40 years, but what do they choose to do with the week in their summer? Go and learn some more. <laughs> and I, I find that totally inspiring. That uh, you know, no one knows knows it all. You open the door and you find that there are two more behind it. <laughs> <laughs> I would certainly be remiss if I uh, ended this uh, interview and didn't share uh, two things with you. The first thing is that. Uh, quite a few years ago, right after 9-11, I was honored um, at that time. I was very active in the American Court Records Association, uh, and I was so honored to to be in Avery Fisher Hall as you premiered your work, uh, Memorial. Uh, oh, you were there. With the Concordia Choir and the orchestra, and um, that was such a moving work. Could you maybe uh, talk about the emotions that, that ran through your head as you as you prepared such a work for such a tragic event? Oh, yeah, I could talk way too long about that, but I'll try and put the, <laughs> in the thumbnail sketch into it. That was one of the, among, uh, I mean, I think I get, I'm fortunate to have great musical moments every year, um, all the time, in rehearsal and performance. But, uh, you know, I look back at that as, as one of the highlight moments, musical moments uh, in my life, where uh, this was shortly after we were it was 2003 and the events of 9/11 in New York City were still rather raw uh you know it was still a big hurt and a nation that was still reeling from all of this and and so both the writing of the piece uh in the the months ahead of the premiere the teaching of it here at, at Concordia to our our uh, Choir, our orchestra, my friend and colleague Peter Halverson, who for whom I wrote the solo, um, you know, all of that uh, was was happening still at a time where we needed healing. And if I would talk about any anything that affected me the most, and probably all of us that day, where we did actually three performances of that piece in the day, the two in Lincoln Center, and then we we closed with the one at the uh, Riverside Church that night um, in which New Yorkers, for the first two it was ACDA members, and the New Yorkers were invited for the final one that night, and that was almost the most powerful one because of that, um, uh, is that the piece, though there's a lot of drama and a lot of fuss and feathers that happen to reflect the, the falling of the towers, and that drama is there. You heard it. It's It's the... Uh, that's a very visceral part of the first third of the piece. Um, however, the remaining two-thirds of it really are more philosophical. They're about finding common ground. Uh, part of the text written, again, by my good friend and colleague Roy Hammerling here at Concordia, who wrote a series of prayers following the events of 9-11, and I used several of his prayers in that piece, which... Uh, you know, seek after finding common ground. If we're ever going to lay down the swords, we're going to have to find a way uh, to avoid simple retribution. Because, uh, you know, if, if, you, if you constantly poke each other's eyes out, you wind up just being blind. And I forget who said that. It might have been Gandhi. <laughs> and I didn't quote it very well. But uh, you know, that I, what I remember from the end of that, especially those performances, that it, it asks us, uh, I ended with Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy, and that's all you really can do. You, you, 
finally, in the end, you you hope and pray for uh, a nation, a world that that uh, has to stop fighting it at some point. So I think of it as a healing piece, and uh, one that I'll be doing again at uh, this September 11th on the 10th anniversary at Lincoln Center. Congratulations. So, thank you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to... I'm sorry, go ahead. I recall that performance that you that you did at uh, Lincoln Center, uh, the thing that really set the tone for me was that the orchestra played uh, Samuel Barber's Adagio for strings, which has been used with so many uh, memorial services and observance of it, it seems like that's like the, the universal piece that's used as a tragic time and then to hear that piece precede this larger work it was it was such a, a reverent experience. You know, you're absolutely right. I think the Barbara Daggio started back in the in the late forties if I recall, maybe even with Roosevelt's death, but I remember through major national events such as Kennedy, John, one of John F. Kennedy was shot. I remember uh, the Barbara Daggio uh, being played on the radio and television many times over throughout that time. And it, it, you're, you just, I think, are so correct that that piece, the Barbara Daggio for strings, has gained a kind of place in our national psyche for times of national mourning. And it just seems when we uh, you know, planned that performance, that that was the perfect way to set up this piece. And I'm glad you remembered that. <laughs> Thank you. Well, Dr. Clawson, it has been certainly my my distinct privilege to, to speak to you this afternoon. This is almost a full circle moment for me. I remember my mentor gave me uh, a disc, and it was a recording of the cantata, A New Creation, so many years ago. I think it was like 1993 that I first heard uh, set me as a seal, and I never would realize that I would be conducting that piece on a graduate conducting recital and let alone speaking to you live on the air um, in 2011. So I want to say thank you so much for sharing um, your work with the Concordia Choir and your career as a composer with us today. Well, it's been my pleasure, and thank you uh, for what you do for all of us in, in, in classical music and choral music and for the opportunity to talk about all of this today with you. We look forward to being in Washington, D.C. very soon. Yes, and again, listeners, I do want to draw your attention that the Concordia Choir, under the direction of Dr. Renee Clawson, will perform at the National Presbyterian Church on February the 19th of this month. What I'd like to do now, just as we close, I would like to play a recording of All Ye That Have Life and Breath by Renee Clawson, sung by the Richard Zelensky Singers. This has been Patrick B. McCoy, the African-American voice in classical music, and have a good day.